that um, we are a, um, a, a, a group of people, all from different backgrounds, all from uh, different lives, Lord God, but you have united us in your, uh, in your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. And we're just so grateful for that, Lord, so grateful for the fact that we are family, that we belong to one another, that we have this wonderful fellowship with one another and with uh, you, um, Father, through Jesus. And and I, I want to thank you for it, Lord, because it, 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 it in, is, in itself it is such a comfort to us that we are, we can know we're prayed for, Lord, that we are cared about, that we, that we have someone to turn to in, in flesh and blood when we need help. And thank you, thank you that you have done that uh, with us. Thank you that you've brought us together in this way. Um, Lord, we want to learn more about that fellowship. We want to learn more about our fellowship first with you and with the Lord Jesus and with one another. And so I pray, Lord, that as we start to dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today, you will really show us what we need to know. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, okay, so uh, could somebody read, we'll test out the microphone, someone read... Um, First uh, Corinthians chapter one, verse one to seventeen, please. Brian, can I just ask you, have you switched the recorder on? Yes. Thank you. It's just because it's different. Okay, First Corinthians chapter one, one to seventeen. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am Apostles, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptise none of you except Christus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptised in my name. Now I did baptise also the house of Stephanus, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made. Thank you. 
Okay. So you can see from the first half a chapter that this church is in serious trouble. It's um, um, and unfortunately, the, the problems that they were creating and facing didn't stay within the church. They were going outside of the church. And when problems within a church go outside of the church, what do you think happens? Other people. Exactly. Look at those Christians. What are the two, or two main things that are leveled against Christians who have those sorts of problems? What sorts of problems did they have in this church? Just they had division, disagreements, uh, because they were following different people. And the other thing that is not mentioned here, but you know about because you've read the whole letter already, sexual, sexual immorality. So there was sexual immorality and division uh, in the church. And so what would be the um, two main criticisms levelled at believers because of what's happening in this church? Hypocrisy, hypocrisy they're hypocrites. Um, Yes, still in the world, so they're and they're hypocritical, and also in something that is really uh, yeah <laughs> that you're that they're not showing love, so they're so kind of I think I'd put that all in the hypocritical nature of it. But the other big thing is they can't even agree amongst themselves. So how can we believe what they're preaching? That's the big thing. They can't even agree in their own uh, corporate body about what they think, so how could we possibly trust what they say? That's the problem with division in the church. It creates outside of the church um, the misunderstanding that we don't know what's right and what's wrong, we don't know who to follow and who not to follow, and um, consequently, people they, they don't know that they can trust what you say. So... Um, so Paul's writing to this church, which is guilty of sexual immorality. Uh, people are um, following different leadership, and that's causing them... I mean, it doesn't really matter. There are different leaders within the church, but there's only one leader, and his name is Christ. The problem with this following of leaders is what? What's the problem that they have with this following of leaders? Yeah, they say they are of that, but they're demoting Christ because some are following Christ, some are following Paul, some are following uh, Peter, Cephas, and some Apollos, and they're putting Christ into that division. So it's almost as if Christ is now demoted to be on the same level as Paul or Peter or someone else. As soon as you put someone's name in what you're teaching as gospel outside, you demote Christ. Um, and you actually uh, demote what you're saying, you, you denigrate what you're saying because you're hanging it on what someone else says. You know, I was teaching on Friday about a particular subject and, and the way that I opened with it on Friday was when we stand before the Lord, we cannot say, well, so-and-so said this or so-and-so said that because... Uh, we're going to be held accountable for what not only what we know, but what we could have known if we had come to the truth of the word. So it's not just what you know that you're responsible for. You're responsible for studying the word and finding out for yourself. Now, I face that on a much smaller scale. I'm not trying to say I'm like Paul or Peter or Apollos here, but you know, many people tell me that for a long time, they, when they were talking about anything from scripture, they were saying, well, Anne says this. 
Can you imagine the animosity that built up to this, towards this person called Anne, whom they'd never met, but they suddenly thought was being elevated to a position of great authority? It's completely and utterly wrong. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Juliet and I have been in a situation where the vicar wasn't present and there was a question asked and somebody uh, who was actually in a position of leading the group said, oh, we'll have to wait until <laughs> such and such a person comes back yeah. to ask. And I said, oh. well, we're holding the truth in our hands. Can we not look? Let's have a look and see what we can find out, yeah. But it, I, I think it's really widespread. Mm, it is. I think it's probably partly our human nature. That's how we go with things. And, and also, you know, hopefully you trust certain people, so you don't mind quoting what they say. But you can only quote what I say or anybody says if you can confirm it in Scripture. Otherwise, you might as well chuck it out because it's not. I go to a couple of different Bible People are now wanting to bring books Yes. And I, I said, you need to be in the Yes, exactly. They just want to do it. Yes, it's because it's easier. It's easier. It's easier to read a book about the Bible than it is to read the Bible for, for many different reasons. Yeah. So, anyway, so this is what's happening. Um, and uh, where was Paul when he wrote Corinthians? Can you remember? Sorry, while he was in Corinthians, let me put that the other way around. While he was in Corinth, he wrote another letter. Can you remember what letter it was? He wrote Romans in Corinth. And when you read the first chapter of Romans, um, from verse 18 down, you see that he was probably just looking out of his window. So could we go to Romans chapter 1? I'm just going to read you from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, 
and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And I think it's really important to to know where Paul is when he's writing certain things. He's in Corinth. He's looking out into a city of immorality, fornication, prostitution, just a licentious lifestyle and he's seeing that infiltrating the the church and his whole purpose in writing um, uh, um, writing back to the Corinthians after he's left Corinth is to show them that what is happening is everything you do and everything you say and every division and every lifestyle choice you make affects the gospel message. It affects the hearing of that gospel and the conversion of people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a big message, isn't it? I mean, that's a big message. Um, and, and it's hard for us to know that. I mean, it's hard for us to believe, really, that everything we do and everything we say affects the salvation of the people around us. But it does. It does. Every word you say and every lifestyle choice you make and every time you decide that you're going to fight for this teacher or that teacher or this one or that one or you're going to follow this and follow that, every one of those things (coughs) affects the um, reception of the gospel from the church. That's why it's such a tragedy that we live in a part of the world where the church is so divided and it's so divided on issues that are uh, some of them very important, but others unimportant. Um, so when he Paul writes to the Corinthians then, um, and he's writing to people who are, uh, we know they're proud and they are um, relying on their own human reasoning. And uh, what do you think he wants to tell them? What would you want to tell a person? Well, if you were writing this letter to the Corinthians, what would you say to them? straight up from the beginning. Forget what Paul says for a minute. What would you say? How would you begin? Keep your eye on the ball. The great thing is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep your eye on the ball. Yeah. Right. I think he, he, he encouraged them for how well they started. Yeah. Um, and made that comparison. Yeah. How would you do it? This is what I'm asking. How would you do it? If you knew that the Corinthians were doing what they were doing, what would you do? Because actually, we're saying what you're saying here is um, is in light of what we've read, what we've read. But what happens in the church when people start to follow one leader or go this way or go that way? What is our automatic human response to that? Hmm? We judge them. We always judge them. We tell them you're wrong. This is right. This is right and that's wrong. This is the way you should be going and not that way. Um, That's what we do all the time. We judge those people 
who are, as far as we're concerned, going the wrong way. Mm. And um, we begin, when we're trying to p pull them back to the right way, we begin with what they're doing wrong. Always. We do that with our own children. It's human. It's just the human nature. We begin and we talk about the things they're doing wrong. I do it a thousand times a day in conversations, not necessarily with people going wrong, but if I want to talk to someone, imagine the situation with Israel. I mean, 90, probably 80% of the church in this country has no understanding of the place of Israel in the plan and the purpose of God. Uh, yeah. Um, replacement theology, it's called, has completely taken over the church in well, not completely, but has largely taken over the church. Now, if I want to talk to someone about Israel and about the fact that they're wrong to do that, mm. I can't tell you how many times I start with, well, you're just wrong. I mean, God's plan for Israel, it's as plain as the nose on your face. You just have to see this and you just have to see that. Mm. Instead of talking about who God is, mm. who is God and what's he done, and then starting from there and working towards, well, how could that God that you've just described to me be turning his back on a people that he promised that for eternity he had an everlasting covenant with them? Can you see what I mean? So it's this whole rethinking, and that's what the Bible always gets us to do, rethink. Rethink your approach, rethink your ideas, rethink what you have, have based your life on, and start to see everything with God first, and then how that will affect everything else. It was an interesting question that you said, how would you do mm. Because it actually, that then points to me. Mm. Me thinking, how God dealt with me. Yeah. Because the first thing is that he pours absolute grace into my life. Mm. And then, very gently, throughout my journey with him, he's, he's guided me. He's guided you, yeah. A, a closer yeah, yeah. But I haven't... I don't think I've really experienced too many sort of uh, bashes on the back of the neck from God. <laughs> I think it's more His grace that I've experienced, and then me bowing down in worship, realizing what an amazing God is, and then me saying, "Okay, I'm mucking up, God, but I really want to be close yeah, to Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what he's going to do in First Corinthians. Paul is going to write to these people. I don't think you could probably imagine a worse church. This is a very badly behaved, bad thinking, bad everything church. And what he begins with is really important. So that's what we're going to look at today. What he begins with. How does he deal with immoral, uh, divided church? How is he dealing with them? The first thing he does is to remind them who they are in Christ Jesus. Who, what God has done to put them in Christ Jesus. So what do you think we're supposed to take from that? Exactly. That's how we should be. That's how we should deal with believers all the time. That's how we should deal with one another. That's how we should deal with people outside of the church. That we are not holier than thou. We just have a holy God. Exactly. Exactly. So let's see. Let's see what he does because he begins with this: um, who they are in Christ. Because he wants to come at come at them and correct them. He does want to correct them, but he he always begins with who he is 
and who God is, how we are in relation to God, how God deals with us in relation. I actually think the whole Bible can be divided into two parts. Who is God and how do we get to him? Who is God and how do we relate to him? The whole Bible talks about that from Genesis to Revelation. Who's God? He's this God. And who are we and how do we get there? That's exactly what the Bible talks about. In every letter, in every book, you see the same thing. So, um, who is Paul according to him here? Who is Paul first? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. Yes, he's called as an apostle or called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Um, so what does Paul know about himself then? Just from those two things, what does he know about himself? I, I know he says he's an apostle and, he's, and it's by the will of God. So I want you to go, what does that mean? What does that mean? Mm, yes, yes and no, yes and no. What did you say, Maureen? Um, got, he knew God's purpose for his life. He knew God's purpose for his life. That's the big thing. He knew God's purpose for his life. And what was his purpose for Paul? <laughs> to, take the, to preach the gospel. His, his whole life, the purpose of his life, was to be one sent. That's what apostle means, to a messenger or one sent. And he was to be a person sent with the gospel. In Acts chapter 24, I think it's Acts 24, it might be Acts 20. Hold on a minute. Acts um, uh, 24, no, 20. Acts 20, verse... Um, 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul knew who he was and he knew his purpose. In all of his letters you read, this is a man who lays himself open. He's, he tells you about his fear. He tells you about his thorn in the flesh. He tells you about praying three times to God to take that thorn away. And God's saying, my grace is sufficient. He is not afraid of anybody or anything. He will say in the Corinthian letters, it's of no account to me that you judge me. It's of no account to me that I judge myself. The only thing I am bothered about at all is what God says about me. So he has this absolute firm assurance of who he is and what his purpose is. Um, uh, and he wants every believer to have that sort of assurance. So now, even before we get out of the first verse, we should be asking <coughs> ourselves, do we have that assurance? Do we have that firm assurance of who we are and what the purpose of our life is? Okay. Um, what would be, why would we need to have that, do you think? Why does he want them to have that? Why does he want them to know the truth about who they are and uh, who, who God is? Yes, yeah, but let's, uh, even more practical than that. Why is it important that you know who you are and what your purpose is? Because the enemy is always trying. Because there's an enemy about you always. Your enemy is often your own flesh. <laughs> your enemy is often your own thinking and your own human nature. That is always 
constantly trying to draw you away from the truth. So is Satan. So is the world. So why is it important that you know who you are and who, what your purpose is? Because you have, you receive strength from that, and you receive peace from that, and you gain joy from that, and you're not easily toppled about. Now imagine Paul's writing to people in Corinth, and they are being hit not just by the philosophies from outside, but from all this stuff inside the church that's saying it's okay, you can sleep with your father's wife. That's okay. It's okay. We're all saved by grace. Look how gracious God is. We can live any way we want. This is what they're being hit by. And that's what we're being hit by. And it sounds arrogant to say, no, you can't because this is sin and this is sin and this is sin and this is sin. Because we live in a society where you can't talk about sin. Because sin is just like, it's an old-fashioned word. doesn't belong to the 21st century. So you have to know who you are and who God is and what your purpose is. Because if you don't know your purpose, you'll be running around like a mad, headless chicken trying to fight 500 battles all at once. This is applying to the church, not to the outside. Of course, yeah. yeah. It's applying to... Because in our secular society today, if we were concerning ourselves with that, mm. uh, well, you know, we were not concerned with what the church is and who it is and what other people on the side might think. Yeah, it's not up to us to um, try and take a message of correction to people who are not under God's authority. No, of course not. They can't possibly hear anything about no. until they, they hear from God. But, but you recognise that they need saving, and they need saving, and they need His love, and they need His grace, and they need His mercy, and they need His forgiveness. But, the, but what we're talking about, what he's correcting here is the fact that they are in a church that in every way is denigrating the work of God and who God is. And so what he's saying is, you need to, you know, this is what you need to be doing in order to, do, to f correctly fulfill the purpose of your life. So... Uh, yes and no. Yes, we are to concern ourselves with ourselves in the church, but only so that we can fulfill the purpose. Our purpose is not to live together happily. That's not our purpose. <laughs> That's a byproduct. That's a side effect of being in Christ. It's a wonderful fellowship that we have with one another, but that's not the purpose. Our purpose is to represent Christ to the world. And you cannot do that unless you know who he is and who you are in him. So... Um, First Corinthians, he tells them, he starts with that, he wants them to have this tremendous assurance of who they are, and he starts with who he is. Um, Jesus, doesn't he, Jesus say in John 8, 32, if you are truly my disciples, you will continue in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Not just set you free from uh, when you first came to Christ, but make you free every as you go on in Christ throughout your life. You must know the truth and you must allow it to set you free or make you free. So virtually every one of the first nine verses tell you um, uh, who you are in relation to God. Um, and he's going to tell them in the first nine verses three things. He's going to tell them what happened in the past, what happens in the present and what will happen in the future. And all of those nine verses are designed to give them complete assurance that they are held by God, that they need not be afraid. 
So verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. What happened to you in the past? What happened to the Corinthians? What happened to you in the past? Yeah, specifically you were called... You were called, you were, in the words, in the text, you were called. We called on the name of Christ. You called on the name of the Lord Jesus and you're sanctified. Three things happen, they're all past tense verbs. You were called, you were sanctified and you called, past tense, on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, uh, and the past tense called on is a continuous going on into the future, calling on the name um, of Jesus. Okay, what does this tell you about your sanctification? Let's deal with that first. <coughs> yes, and if he says to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? You have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's a past tense done deal. What does that mean then? Because we think of sanctification as an ongoing process, don't we? Um, we think of sanctification as being made more righteous, made more holy, made more Christ-like. Um, somebody look up First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, and read that, please. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Right. So, what does that sound like? Is that past tense sanctification or present tense ongoing? Is present tense ongoing sanctification? Romans chapter 6, verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. What's that talking about? Ongoing. ongoing. And the... the finished result will be sanctification. So First Thessalonians, the same writer, Paul, is saying um, it's a present tense sanctification. In uh, First Corinthians, he's saying it's a past tense sanctification. And here in Romans 6, he's saying it's future tense, resulting in your sanctification. And what about First Peter chapter 1, uh, First Peter chapter 2, verse 15? For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of um, of uh, sorry foolish men. Peter is talking about the your doing right, which the word means sanctification. Your doing right will silence the ignorance of uh, foolish men. So what I'm trying to do is I want us to go deeper than the words. You know these words. You know that it says having been sanctified. If you don't, you've read that, hopefully, in your homework and what you've been doing. You know what that means. But what does it actually mean? Because Paul is saying in, in Corinthians, you were sanctified. It was done. 
in the past. And then to the Thessalonians, he's saying it's going on present tense. And to the Romans, he's saying it's a result in the future. So what is it about sanctification that we can know from all of that? It's an ongoing process and? And? It's been done already. Now, you have to try to get your heads around this because this is the truth. You are completely and utterly sanctified. Is that because we're seated with... In well, he doesn't say that. He no, just says that you are. No, no. Is that why? Because we have to be sanctified. Um, yes and no. Yes and no, definitely. Is it related to the fact that it's in Christ, but it's a living organism? This sanctification is living. Yeah. So it's, it's where is it? Yeah. It's well, t- think, think about this. What, what is he writing to the Corinthians for? What does he want to tell them? What is he going to tell them from verse 10 onwards? Yeah, he's going to say, turn from everything you're doing and get back on track. So you would expect him, wouldn't you, to use a future tense or a present ongoing tense (laughs) sanctification, but he doesn't. He uses past tense sanctification. He says, you have been sanctified. Now, why do you think he's doing that? Why? Yes, 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 because only holy people can live holy. You cannot live holy if you are not already holy. Do you see what I mean? You cannot live as a saint unless you are a saint. It's the same way as sinners, what you, uh, I think Kate was saying. There's no point in us talking to sinners about individual sins because they can't do anything else. They're sinners. Sinners sin. Saints live like saints. So when you're talking to someone who is a believer, they have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are living far from him. What you must do is start from the fact it is possible for you to live the way God wants you to live because you have been sanctified. You have been made holy. It is possible for you to do. Because what happens to you when you are in a known sin and you keep on doing the same thing day after day after day after day, what starts to happen to you? You're defeated. Why? Because it all seems hopeless. You can't get Because you believe the lie that you cannot Mm. be different. Mm. And that's what he's telling them. No matter where you've gone, no matter how far you've gone, if you have truly trusted Christ, you have been made holy. Past tense. Something happened to you in the past, and that was done. And now... Mm? Sorry, but surely people know this, and they will do all they can. One, to not listen to the devil, and not listen to those evil thoughts, and live as righteously as possible. Do you really think that, and you've read Corinthians? Not Corinthians, no. no. So where was the change then? 1952? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Where yeah. was the change? Human beings are human beings. Yeah. We have the old nature and the new creation. We have the old man that we must lay aside and the new man that we must put on. And in everybody that's true, Julia. Everybody. There are layers, obviously, and as you go on with the Lord, hopefully you've had more time with putting on the new man. But nonetheless, this is... Um, First Corinthians could be written to the church in 2018. There are many churches like this, many Christians like this. 
these are believers he's writing to. And that's what he wants to let them know right at the beginning. I'm going to say some hard stuff to you. I'm not doubting your salvation. I'm speaking about your life, your outward living of that salvation. Mm. So he says, you were sanctified. What does the word sanctify actually mean? Made holy. What else? Set apart. What else? Mm, sort of. It means to purify, to consecrate. You were consecrated by God for himself. That's what he's saying. You were consecrated by God for himself. You were taken out of the mass of humanity for God. And he has called you holy. Why? How has he made you holy? Because he has come to live with inside you. So now you are and forever will be holy. Holy to him. So what do you know then? Because you now take the Thessalonian verse and the Romans verse and the First Peter verse and many, many other verses in scripture. Take that and know something else. If God sanctified you, what does he expect, think? What will he make happen going forward? He will do what we talked about last time. He will work from the inside of you by his spirit who's within and the outside of you by the word that you put in. And he will make in reality what is already true spiritually. He will make in, in practical life what is already true about you. Mm -hmm. ah, there you go. So now, so now, where, what happens there? That's the next question almost. Um, so it's not my next question, but it's the next thing. Um, something happened in our past to make us holy. And that was God. That's what he's telling them. God happened in your past to make you holy. He happened. He did something. He, he was something to you. It happened in the past. And now look at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. That's exactly what he's going to say to these people. Someone read verse 9 to verse 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. So can you see what he's doing? He's taking a truth that he knows. He's writing to believers and he is saying, you were sanctified, <coughs> you were washed. But he's talking to people who are still carrying on in that lifestyle. So it's really important that we understand exactly what it means to be sanctified in Christ Jesus, when it happens to us, how it plays itself out, because it affects not only our own thinking about ourselves, but also how we deal with other people, how we actually approach other believers um, and talk to them about um, their lives. So how does the work of God then, how does it work? How does the work of God in the past um, fit in with the process of becoming holy, living holy? How can it be 
past tense, present tense, and future tense. He explains it in, in verse 2. We're still in verse chapter 1. We're, we won't leave chapter 1 really in essence. We're going to be in chapter 1. How can sanctification be both past tense, like an actual separation, and present tense, um, you know, like the clean-up operation, as it were? Hmm? Yeah, it's continuous. But, but, but what he's saying is God's done something. So what's he done? Is it anything to do with putting Christ in you? You know, he's put, put Christ in us. Yes, yes. Those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. See, I think that I can see your faces, and a lot of people here think this is really simple, don't you? You're thinking it's simple, and I really know all this already, and so why are we laboring this? Well, we're laboring it because you don't know it all already, because Paul wrote these first nine verses in a major church... I was just thinking this, sorry. Yeah, no, it's not. That's Philippians. (laughs) We might get to it, Julia, but not just yet. (laughs) Um, It is, but, I, but he's going to build to something in these nine verses. Yes, it is. And yes, that's sort of there. He who, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Yes, but we have to know more than the words. We have to understand what actually goes on. Because if we don't, we forget. And we, don't, we can't figure it out. So, who, who did what in verse 2? Tell me who did what in verse 2. He made us saints. Yes. So who did what? What does he say, actually? What did God do in verse 2? He sanctified, to, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. That's what God did. What did you do? What did they do? Together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Okay, so everything that God touches in the temple in the Old Testament becomes holy, right? So anything that God touches becomes holy. What happens when, um, well, when that happened, did you know about it? How did you know about it? Because there was a, a relationship that started... How did you know about it? How did you know that God had called you? You had this love for Jesus. You had this love for Jesus. The very first thing, the very first thing. How did you know that God had called you? Because I called him. Because you, no. You didn't call him first. How did you know that God called you? You responded. You prayed to become a believer. You put your trust in Jesus. You put your trust in Jesus. So what does your salvation look like? On the surface, what does it look like? You heard the gospel. You prayed a prayer. You believed. Then God gave you his spirit. That's what it looks like. Because the only conscious element you had was when you called on the name of Jesus. Mm. You called on his name. You heard the gospel. You responded to the gospel. Something happened and you called on his name. Right? 
So there are a, there's a massive part of Christianity that thinks that you began your salvation. You instigated it. You were the responsible for your salvation. Now, what happens if you hang on that? Because that's the first thing that happens. What happens in your thinking and in, your, uh, in the outworking? I can lose it because I'm the one who picked it up and I can be the one who puts it down. What also starts to infiltrate your mind? Just think about it. Think about it in terms of the gospel message that you might preach. Everything is about what we can do, but also what? That God is subject to you. Yeah. Yeah. He's subject to us. He must do what we pray. I hear that five million times a day. Mm -hmm. If we all agree, if the three of us agree, God will do it. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. That's the problem with these things. You called on the name of Jesus. That was your first understanding of, of, of coming into anything. You, ha you prayed a prayer. You said something. You cried out, help God. Something happened. But you verbalized your need for God in Christ Jesus, in some way. And if you're not understanding that God was at work before the foundation of the world to choose you, everything will henceforth be dependent on you. That's taught throughout Christi the Christian world. That it's all about you. It's all about how you work, live. It's all about what you do. It's all about whether you pray right or whether you say the right words or whether you do this or whether your faith's strong enough because it's all about you. Can you see what I mean? From that simple thing, it becomes all about you. And that's what Paul's trying to tell them here. This is not about you. This is about God. You called on the name of God, but before you did, he chose you before he created the world. Ephesians, you brought it up, um, Chris, didn't you? Ephesians 1, verse 4, um, well, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In love, he predestined us. To um, I've quoted that wrong. You should be shouting at me. Read your Bible, Anne. Um, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Can you see what that means? What does that mean for you? Yeah, but think about in terms, just think about more practically than, uh, yes, it is a gift, Julia. I'm sorry, I don't mean to say no all the time, but yes, it's true. But what Paul's trying to tell them, what is he trying to tell them about their salvation? It's not up to them. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. The fact that you prayed a prayer at 16 or 12 or 42 or 60 doesn't actually make a lot of difference because before God created anything, you were his. Also, it's, it's, it's such a relief when you're talking to somebody about God. And you think, oh, I'm not sure I really hit the nail on the spot with that person. Have I gone too far or have I gone far enough? Because it's not all about me, it's about God. So mm. you know, we can just do what we mm. feel mm. we can, pray about the person, yeah. mm. Yeah, pray, pray God will bless them. And then it makes you feel easy because mm. you know it's not up to you. Mm. So what, sorry, what happened when you were chosen by, um, by God? What happened? You opened the door from the inside. Yes, you did. You opened your door. Yeah, but what happened when he chose you before the foundation of the world? What happened 
when God chose you before the foundation of the world. <laughs> you were in fellowship with God. You were in fellowship with Christ. In order to be in fellowship with Christ and with God, you had to be chosen by God before the foundation of the world. When were you consciously aware of that fellowship? When you called upon him, when you called upon the name of the Lord. You were always in fellowship with God. You have always been chosen by God. You have always, since, the, since he made anything, you have been in fellowship with God. Well, now, <laughs> yeah, yes, you were adopted then. You were, yeah, you were adopted. All those words, adopted, uh, born again, they're all ways that God has given us to hang what something unimaginable in, in human terms. That's all. Go ahead, Chris. You've always been gods from before birth. Yes. In sin, my mother conceived me. But Pop David can still say... Before, you know, knew every day of my life before any one of them came to be. Mm-hmm. Where can I go from you? Because, you know, if I go here or there, you're with me. Mm-hmm. So I'm it's only that this life has messed everything up. And I think as long as we are gods, and as long as we stay with God, then we know that we'll have that gift at the end. It's only, I think it's only life that's interfering with that. What do you mean by that? Because, because life, to be here, we are sinful. When we were with God, we would have been... No, we weren't. That's against Caesar. So you're making a separation between when you were with God mm-hmm. and then you got born and you weren't with God. That's not true. But, but for a long time I wasn't because I wasn't a Christian. No, but you've always been God's. Yeah. Yeah. You just didn't know it. Yeah. And that's my point, And I think that's partly Paul's point. If you don't know you're in fellowship with Christ and God. If it only came into your conscious experience when you prayed to receive Christ, you couldn't have lived any way for God because you had no conscious experience of your salvation. Do you see what I mean? So what he's trying to say is, in some ways, your conscious experience, which makes your behavior, or should make your behavior change, It didn't come in until you were 42 or 16 or whatever age you were, but nonetheless, you were gods. Yeah, no, I don't want your spanners, Jenny. Yeah, go on, you can, you can, you can, yeah. How do they know? How do they know? How do they know? But that no, but it doesn't. You didn't have a desire for God until you prayed, and suddenly you did. This is this is what I'm saying. This work of God, we cannot explain. You can't put human words on it. It's too big. Yeah. But but don't make the implication because you can't even understand the chosen bit, let alone what it might imply. And as humans, we always want to do that. We always want to. Well, that means this because we're going to turn it backwards on itself and say, well, some are chosen, some are not. Okay, that is actually in words that's true. Mm. But how that works, I have no idea. Yes, he did. He did die for everybody. So that's what I'm saying. You cannot work this out. So what is the purpose for Paul writing this to the Corinthians? What does he want them to know? 
That's what we've got to get at. See, we've read those words. You've read those words. You know what he's saying. You know, yeah, I'm sanctified in Christ Jesus and I called upon the name of the Lord and I'm a saint by calling. You would be able to tell me what that means. Here. But I want to go down and I want to know, why is he writing this to these people? Why is he writing this letter? Why is he writing this letter to the church in 2018? And how does it change the way I talk to people? You said what it means he hasn't chosen some people. How do we know who they are? You don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. I didn't know who I I was. Nobody knows who they are until God makes himself known to them in their conscious experience. Nobody knows. So... The more you discuss this and the more you talk about it, what I see Paul trying to do, because before the world began, he put his love on me. I wasn't even... I was in his head and not even here. It just, it, it uh, makes his magnificence, it makes his exactly. so big. Exactly, exactly. And me such a peanut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just think that's what Paul's trying to do. Just look at this, you know, before he even, because I was joking last night saying, oh, you know, he made the earth, the world, the sky, and, the earth, and then he thought, well, I made humans. But actually before that, yes. he had us in exactly. his heart. Exactly. And actually, for God, there's no before. It's all now. It's all now. So now, you are what you have always been intended to be since he created the world. Now, you are that person. Now and forever, you are that person. I can't even, you can't put time words on it. There is no before and after and now and present and past. What I'm trying to say is that God has given us language in words, to put into words what, something that is unexplainable. And we have, but we have to understand, we have to know what, what the truth of it is, even if we can't correctly articulate it, because it will change the way you deal with people. Jenny, you've said, well, what about those who are not saved? Well, we don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. You don't know. You could talk to anybody at any time, and suddenly they could come to the realization of who God is. Do they know this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that we have to understand that our uh, salvation was set before time began. And what, what Paul will start to tell them is, in this letter is, do you really think that something God did before he created the world, you can undo now? Yeah. That's the thing. That's the thing. But are you talking about predestination? Well, I, yeah, he, he, I am in a way, predestination. But in Ephesians 1, when he talks about what we're predestined for, it's never you're just predestined for salvation. You're predestined to be holy and blameless. So think about that. God predestined, i.e. before time began, he decided Juliet and Kate and Rosie would be holy and blameless before him. Do you really think you can get in the way of that? That's what I mean. That's what he wants them to know because they are going to struggle to give up their drinking, to give up their homosexuality, to give up their immorality. They are going to struggle to not be divided, to not follow certain teachers, to not do certain things. It will be a struggle for them. Something somewhere along the line, Juliet, will be a struggle. No, I don't, because these people do have faith. They just don't have the strength to struggle with it. 
And so that's what he's, um, that's what he wants to tell them. Is Maureen all right? Has she decided to run? No, I think she's got to go. Ah, okay. So there's uh, past tense, what God did in the past, and there's ongoing. How does that, give me a verse to show ongoing sanctification. Not from 1 Corinthians. No, not from 1 Corinthians. Another verse that you know off the top of your head. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. There is the conundrum, the paradox of the human Christian life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you. What does that mean? God is at work in you, so work out. <laughs> so, you are people. What happened when um, God called you? Um, you, you, came, or you? You heard the call of God and you came into an understanding that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. What were you chosen for? What, when he says in verse 9, you were called, what were you called into? Verse 9. Fellowship with his son. You were called into fellowship with his son, um, Jesus Christ. So when you talk about people who are believers, what are you actually saying? According to this verse 9, what has God done? What is a believer? Someone who is in fellowship, experiential fellowship with Jesus Christ. Right. What would we call it when you're called by God and something happens to you? You, you call it being born again, being converted, being this, being that. But actually what he says here is that you were called into fellowship with his son. Why do you think he calls it that here? What does fellowship mean? A it's a relationship, yeah. It, it, in, so in that relationship of fellowship, what is happening? Mm, I want more specifically. What happens in a fellowship? Rosie and I are in fellowship. What does that mean? Rosie and I are in fellowship. What happens? Yeah, don't know. Maybe, maybe not. What happens when I'm in fellowship? What does the word fellowship mean? You're sharing. You're sharing. What does God share with me through Christ? If, if I'm in this fellowship, what should be happening? What would he be sharing with me? Come back, come back, come back. Yes, yes, that might be true, but come back right at the beginning. What does he share with me? What does Christ share with me? His, his spirit, yeah. A um, bit more detail. He shares his forgiveness with me. He shares his strength with me. He shares his righteousness with me. He shares his holiness with me by the giving of his spirit. He shares his grace with me, his love with me, his mercy with me, his peace with me. He shares all of that with me. What do I share with him? Because this is communal. This is a sharing relationship. What do I share with him? No, I can't share forgive my forgiveness with him. What do I share with him? Trust. I share my trust with him. What else? I share my love with him. What else do I share with him? Mm, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he's already got that. So, but, so literally, what would I bring to this relationship? I mean, let's think, this is what we're talking about. What do I bring to my relationship with Christ? And what does he bring to me? Attention. I pray. I pray, and I, I de- I'm dependent on him. What else? So love, prayer, trust. What else? There's another big thing. Who, in, in our relationship. Honor. Yeah, honor, respect. But in our relationship, who's leading and who's, or who's like got more oomph than the other? God has. So if there's any obeying to be done, who's going to be doing it? Me. So what he shares forgiveness and grace and love and mercy and righteousness and kindness and strength and power and everything. And I share my trust and my, or my faith and my prayer and my obedience and my and we together we're in that relationship and that relationship is set because he is eternal holy god and i am who i am and he has deigned to be in a fellowship with us god has brought me into fellowship with him and fellowship is sharing what will i share with god <laughs> what, what could i share with him exactly i can only share my obedience i can only share my trust honor and respect I hadn't thought about that yes I can share my respect I can share my prayer with him I can share that so that's what he that's where he's going in these nine verses he's saying God called you before the foundation of the world he chose you before the foundation of the world he has sanctified you made you holy and he has called you into fellowship with his son and what he wants them to do what he wants us to do and it's been a bit like pulling teeth um, and that might be my fault, I'm sorry. It probably is my fault. But it's like, what does it mean? What does it mean that I am in fellowship with Christ? I'm, I'm in a sharing relationship with the one who created everything. Yeah, and that, so that's what I mean. That's where he wants us to get to. And remember, you individually are not like the Corinthians. Because you are coming and studying his word. You are wanting to to live your life in a way that honors Christ. They weren't. So you can't put yourself right in the place of them, but you can understand the big things that he's telling them at the beginning. You are in fellowship with Christ Jesus. And when he says to you, um, stop doing something or start doing something, or (coughs) or maybe we should go this way, what are you going to say? The absolute truth with him and my vulnerability. Maybe I can share with God my vulnerability that I might not share with anybody else. Yeah, that's exactly. But you're sharing, yes, yeah, so you're sharing truth with him, and in a way, he's sharing truth with you. So I guess that's it. So um, at the end, in, in verse 26, he's going to say, Consider your call. Verse 26 of this chapter, consider your calling. So, because he's going to move them. You've come into this fellowship with Christ. You've been called into this fellowship with Christ Jesus. Consider the fact that God called you and that you were this person, not many noble, not many wise, not many this, not many that. Consider that, that God would do that. So as you're trying to assess your life and assess your fellowship and assess your sharing with Christ, consider the fact that he called you in the first place. Mm. That, um, you are a great and holy God and that we belong to you. And thank you that, um, that for those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know that you chose us before the foundation of the world and that uh, in love 
you predestined us um, to be holy and blameless in your sight. Thank you, Father, that you are that God and that, and that we have this opportunity week on week on week to come and to know more about you and help us not to take it for granted, Lord, but to really consider our calling, as Paul says in, um, in this letter, to consider our calling um, in a way, Lord, that will really honour you. So we thank you, Father, in advance for what you're going to do in this next half an hour, 40 minutes or so, and um, ask you, Lord, to be glorified in our conversation and in our thinking um, as we go through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want you to ask yourself a question then. Knowing that you have been called into fellowship with Jesus, verse 9, um, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, ask yourself the question, is your life so bound up together with Christ that you participate in him, share with him the community or the society of God? That's what fellowship is. It's a sharing of community, of society, of things in common. The word is koinonia in Greek and it means um, community or communion. Ask yourself, is your life so bound up with Christ because that's what fellowship is. Does he bring to you forgiveness, strength, hope, guidance, all of that? And do you bring to him trust and love and uh, your prayer and your obedience? Do you do that? Um, yeah. yeah. So then you are in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Then you have been called. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That is what we are being fel in fellowship is, that you preach Christ crucified. What, when you think about Jesus, you're not asking for signs, you're not asking for anything uh, else. What your what you're understanding is everything is in Christ. Everything I need, everything I am, every purpose of my life is found in Jesus Christ. Um, Paul will say... Um, uh, here in this uh, verse that but to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God what do you learn about our call in those verses 22 to 24 yes that's true but what does he say here he says there are many Jews and many Gentiles who hear his preaching but are not called. Because he knows that if they were called, they would put their trust in Christ. Can you see what he's saying? Uh, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So there are many, many, many people who hear the gospel, do not respond to it, and therefore Paul knows they are not called. They are not part of this group that we call the called. Do you see what I mean? Even though they were chosen before. No, no, this is not them. This is the ones who haven't believed. This is. It's mm. like, but I mean, they, they, so many people, you can, when you talk to them, you know they're just 
Remember, first of all, we've got to remember, Paul is writing corporately. He's saying, I preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, to Gentiles, foolishness. He's not talking about individual people. He's talking about generally, the Jews find the cross of Christ a stumbling block and the Gentiles find it foolishness that God would die, that he would take on flesh, that he would die. That's ridiculous. So that's what he's saying. But what he is saying in there is that even though he's preaching... There are many people not believing. Mm. So it's not simply the preaching of the gospel that is the call of God. Do you see what I mean? Yes. That's what he's saying. A calling is not just preaching the gospel. Being called is God choosing you. And you know you're chosen because you responded to the call. Mm. And I actually think for the sake of this study, yeah, go ahead, Keith. In my understanding, can anybody in the world become a Christian? Yes, anybody, anywhere, anytime. So therefore, everybody's born has been called. No. No, I'd love to say yes. I would so love to say yes, but no. Okay, let me just put it another way. Let's take a, a verse from, I think it's Mark. Many are called, yeah, Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. You preach the gospel to a thousand people in Sirencester and ten will respond by believing. They then become part of a group called the called, even though all of the thousand were called in another way. See what I mean? Yes, you could. But what I'm saying, what Paul's saying here is answering the call makes you the called. <laughs> so get your head around it. Yeah, I do. I know where his confusion comes from. They have the choice, don't they? They have the choice to respond. They do, but, but they do. But all I'm saying to you is come away from that a little bit, come around the other side of it and say, right, all the people who respond are chosen because they wouldn't respond if they weren't chosen. So come from the other side. Just come. Let's just take this. We're, 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 we're Siren Sister. Right? You can be a chosen person, Keith. I'll leave you as a chosen person. But let's oh, say, I'm not chosen, right? Or, or I, I, no, I'm not, 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 not chosen. Just say, the gospel is preached. Rosie's going to preach the gospel in here, right? And we don't know, but there's a red dot on everybody who's, who's actually going to respond, and there's no dot on the others, but we can't see it with our human eyes. So, but God sees it. So he gets Rosie to preach the gospel, and you've got a red dot. Nobody knows, but so you respond to the gospel. That means you were chosen before by God before the foundation of the world. How do we know that? Because you responded. It's, it's so everybody will be called and few will respond. Now, I know you don't like it. You don't like it. There's something in me that doesn't like it. But you know what God says? Get over yourself. I'm God and you're so not. He is condemning some people to hell. <laughs> Why are you saying that? 
Why are you saying You're that he's... Saying God, anybody is going to hell if you don't believe in Yes, Christ. yes. Well, if you're not chosen... Yes. You've no chance. Okay, so tell me. So, so tell me. So what you're saying is, can't I can't have that, and I can't. That person can't help it, and I'm just not having that. I'm just not having that about God because that's not fair. It's not so you're saying no, you are the arbiter of what's fair and what's not. You no, are the I'm arbiter of mercy and I grace. Refuse to go there. I won't even <laughs> talk about it to anybody. No, no but we're not talking about it to anybody. I know that God is more just than I am, more good, more kind exactly. than I am. Exactly. But why would you want to go? Why would you want to talk to an unbeliever about something no, we can't understand? No, but but see, why does God tell you you're chosen? Why is he telling you you're chosen? Do you think he's telling you so that you're going to go up in arms and smoke and horror because this person and this person is not chosen? He's not telling you you're chosen for any other reason except to establish in you the wonderful assurance that God had hold of you before he made the world. And therefore, he will never, ever, ever let you go. This, this doctrine of being chosen is not for you or I to say, well, what about this and what about that? It's, for, it's like the mercy of God. It's just like this blanket of assurance. You don't have to worry. You, our, always our thought is, well, I believe now, but will I believe in 10 years? What will happen? Well, is, is that gonna, am I going to make it to the end? That's the human thinking. And what God does is he says, I don't want you to be anxious about anything. I want you to be so sure that you will be with me in glory, that you will live your life without fear. That's what he means by being chosen. It's not that, so this person isn't and that person isn't. And God wants everybody not to, to perish and all to come to repentance. Put that together with some are chosen and some are not. Yeah. I, how do you put it together? Well, but it's what, true. Go ahead, Chris. Do you used to do Yes, yes. Well, no, that's just a picture. It's mean. just a that's picture. So we have the door. Jenny's heard it. You've got the <coughs> gateway. And, and ev whosoever will may come on the outside. E the whole human race, whosoever will may come. And you get through the door and you look back at the door and above it on the other side is chosen before the foundation of the world. I can't make that right in your thinking. But it is right because God says so. I, no, you don't have to tell anybody. It's actually not for you to tell anybody. It's for you to hold tight. Yeah, but so do I, Jenny. It would never be a part of a salvation. Hey? It would never be part of a gospel message. Of course not. And so, of course as not. you say, it's really after This that, is for you. This is for the children. Yeah. Yeah. This is for those who are going to be tossed about by all sorts of circumstances, whose sin is going to get the better of them many times, who are going to feel like, I'm never going to make it because I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. Who are going to be over, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Please don't let me go. Please don't let me go. It's that's, This is for us. It's because God in his infinite mercy wants you to know that what he set before the foundation of the world, you cannot stop. He will see you through to the end, come what may. It's, it's like the most amazing blessing and all we do is pick it apart and tell him we don't like it. Do you see what I mean? It's like, of course we don't like it because we know people who are not saved. 
And we just can't get our head around that simple thing because we're not God. Yeah, yeah, but actually, it it also says that He'll have mercy on whom He wants to have mercy. And it's like. Yeah, actually, listen. This is truth for the for the family. This is not truth to take outside. Okay, don't talk about predestination with people who are not even saved. You don't understand it, so how can they? You know, don't talk about being chosen with people who haven't even come into the into the family. That w- what they're going to do with that? They're just well, I'm not chosen. You know. It's exactly what I would have said. It's exclusive. Who wants your club? You're so arrogant. Don't talk about chosen. Don't talk about predestined. Don't talk about... Just talk about God loved you so much that he sent his son. He loves the whole world. You can be Muslim or Buddhist. You can be the vilest offender and God will still take you. So that's what we preach. But there will be thousands of people who do not respond to the gospel. Thousands. And you will be able to speak the love of Christ out to them and they just will not respond. Actually, they just will not respond. Which I found very useful. That we're all on a road, to, on a path to God and some of us choose to divert away from it. No, we're not all on a path to God, okay. That's not what but, I meant. But that, that is the fact that we, he wants us all to go but some of us choose deliberately to go away from it. Yeah, but then you're putting your salvation in your hands. You're saying, I've chosen to go away from God, therefore it's me who's deciding whether I'm saved or not. And that comes from a faulty understanding of who God is. God is the one who decides everything. He decides everything. He is God most high. I can't understand it. I don't know how it works. But he says he is God. He says, I'll have mercy on whomever I have mercy. Many are called, but few are chosen. I chose you, he says, before the foundation of the world. Well, why didn't you choose my husband? And why didn't you choose my son? I, I, I can't come to God with that. Because what he's doing all the time is he's saying, you're you and I'm God. Your brain cannot take the truth of this. That's it. Exactly. Can you come to that place of absolute humility and say, God, I do not understand this. But one thing I know You are a God of love, a God of faithfulness, a God of mercy, a God of grace. If I think something, you think it infinitely more. If I even have an ounce of compassion in my body, you have an ocean full of it. Do you see what I mean? And so why would I ever come to God and say, that's not fair? Well, it's not fair you were chosen. You are a sinner. You were an enemy of God. You were... Hey? Yes, unless he plucked you off the road. There's lots of ways that we can maybe think of it, but the plain fact is the the scripture says here, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. That means Jews are not believing and Gentiles are not believing, but to those who are the called, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, yeah. Noah spent a hundred years yeah. trying to persuade the world mm. all the people he was in contact with, but all he could get was his family. 
Exactly. And we can still go on praying for those people who aren't. Of course. I, of course, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed yeah. to preach the gospel. We're supposed to love. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to trust. We're supposed to do all of those things. But mostly we're supposed to get ourselves into the relationship that God ordains for us. And that is he's God and I'm not. And I don't understand some things, and that's okay. I trust that he is in control. But it's good that we focus just on the gospel. Yes, that's why we only preach the gospel. Exactly, exactly. That's why. We're talking about things in the family so that we understand certain things. And Christ wants, God wants us to know about this choosing for the reason of our assurance. Our complete assurance. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And it's very good that if we have a, a you know a bit of a difficult odd month or two where we're not quite feeling as close to God, fellowship aspect is is not quite as uh, hope, you know sort of hopeful as we'd like it to be. We just remain in trust yeah. and know that yeah. He will never leave us or forsake yeah. us. Yeah. And then my experience is that He then comes back massively with something. Yeah. Definitely. Think about it as well. Take it, Jenny. Just take that thought about... Jenny's okay. We're always arguing about this, so it's okay. <laughs> well, we're not, we're not always arguing, but... I don't argue no, about it. I know. I'm happy to trust God. Yeah. So think about this, though. Think about this. If, the sal- if, if everybody's called, Keith, everybody in the whole world's called, and then we just decide, do we want God or not, right? So then it was all down to me. It was down to me. God called everybody, he loved everybody. He's just this lovely God and he wants everybody and he called everybody and so it's just down to me, right? What happens, do you think, with that kind of understanding? What happens with that thought? What happens is eventually, what Paul will talk about at the end of this letter, you start to boast. I chose God. I mean, well, there must have been something in me. I hear that all the time. Even when they say God chose me, he chose me because he saw something in me that would be good, that he could make something of. It's just absolute nonsense. And all of the time, it builds us up and brings him low. It's, it's like, why? That's what he's going to say at the end. Actually, I'm not going to say it because he's going to say to it. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who has confidence, have confidence in the Lord. We are in Christ Jesus because God put us there. Yes, we had to receive him. We had to come and believe in him. That was our part. But when we did, we found God had done that before the foundation of the world. And what he expects us to do is fall flat on our faces in adoration and thankfulness that he would choose a someone like me, someone like me, who is, I can tell you absolutely categorically, guilty of every sin you can think of in practice or in thought, I am guilty of every single sin that you can think of, and yet he would choose me before the foundation of the world. That doesn't make me think, oh, God, you're not fair. It makes me think, oh, God, your grace is amazing. And that's what he's trying to pull out of these Corinthians, because until you get to that place, you cannot live for Christ in the way that he's calling us to live. He wants us to be able to say, you can have every part of me, everything. 
You can have everything that I am and all that I have and use it for your glory because even if you took a million copies of me and a million times what I have, it would never be enough to say thank you for what you have called me, that you have chosen me. That's what it is. And that's what he wants them to get to. Get to that place where everything is God and nothing is you. This is why we should pray without ceasing. Well, I think so. Yes, it's partly that I think, Julia. We're we're supposed to be gra- thankful for our very existence. I mean, if God had not intervened, I would have been in hell. And if there are levels, I'd have been at the worst place. There's it is. It's just, and, and when my husband gets there, my husband who does not believe in Christ, and when he gets there, good as he is in human terms, he will have no excuse. Why? Because God didn't choose him? No, because he looked at the evidence and refused to bow his knee to Christ. So does that work? Well, God chose me and he didn't choose him, so how can God blame him? That's not the way we come to it. That's it. You come to it with... But he had his opportunity, and he refused. Was that because he was not called? No, you can't go there, Barbara. That's it. We can't go to that place because it doesn't exist. There's no such place as he didn't believe because he wasn't called. That doesn't exist, that place. It only exists in our head. We want it to exist because we've turned a sentence back to front, but it doesn't exist. In God's mind... You had every chance to believe in him, and you refused. The fact that he chose me before the foundation of the world, and it's just, that's just something like a little blanket he's given me to keep me warm when my life's a mess and I'm living like a mess. Can I ask you, what about people who are Christians? Well, these are the people he's going to write to, carnal Christians, carnal Christians. And I think actually most people who live as carnal Christians do not understand something about the magnificence of Christ. And they don't understand it because they're not taught to read the scripture. That's the thing. So... That's why, that's why I think he's starting this way. Before we all get into our judgment and they're, they're a Christian and they're not a Christian and they're living like this and they're not doing that. And blah, 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 blah. What he's trying to say is, get yourself right before the Lord. You are in fellowship with Christ because God did it. He did it. He, he chose you and sanctified you and put you in this fellowship and you are sharing your life with Christ. I mean, is there anything? Can you imagine it? God is sharing his life with you. You're sharing the life of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have the word of God, but in those days, they wouldn't have had the word, would they? So they would have to rely on the teaching. Exactly, and exactly. And so that's why Paul, I mean, all these letters are magnificent for us. We've got less excuse than they had. Mm-hmm. I think those Corinthians didn't know. No. They're just, they don't know that they're not living the way they're supposed to live. You know, they've written to him asking him some questions and he's going to answer them because they're struggling. They're struggling to understand. How do we live now then? So, but we're not. We've got all this. So, um, why is he telling them all of this? So that they won't boast in themselves. What is the... um, uh, Yeah, so God wants us to understand that God... um, 
Paul wants us to understand that God has done some things and, um, and that there's a practical reality to what God has done. Um, and as I said earlier, I think one of the big questions we have is, how can I know I will still be a believer in 10 years? How can I know? Well, because my life's a mess, Julia. Because things come up. Because I'm not faithful all the time. Because... No, it's not. It's me succumbing to temptation or me giving in to my flesh. That's not being tested. That's me wanting my own way. Because the humanness of me is always there and in you. Yours may look different. Your tests and temptations and whatever else you want to call them may look different to mine. But your human nature is still there. And you must battle it all the time. And so how can I know I'm going to win that battle forever? Or that Christ in me will win that battle? Hope. That's what he's saying. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2, and Colossians 1, 23, uh, 21 to 23. We'll go to Colossians. We'll read that one. Colossians 1, um, 21 to 23. And though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. If indeed you continue. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 and 2 says more or less the same thing. 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There are so many ifs in Scripture. If you do this, if you do that. So you could be thinking, where's my assurance 15, 1 and 2. Where is my assurance? And without assurance, can I really live with joy and victory? Do you see what I mean? Can I be sure? Because if I'm not sure, for me, I don't know about for you, if I'm not sure I'm saved, I will give up today. Because I know if it counts on my behavior, I will never, ever make it. Because Jesus changed my outward behavior to my inward thoughts. He says if you call someone stupid or a fool, you're committing murder. If, you're, uh, if you look at someone with your eyes, you are committing adultery. So Jesus absolutely stripped away any, any shield for you to hide behind. There is nowhere to run. Now, I know myself and I know if my salvation depends in any way on me, I am totally and utterly lost. And because of the way my personality is, I would say, that's it. I'm never going to make it. So, no, what I'm saying is, if my salvation depends on me, I'm giving up. I'll never make it. 
I'll go back to drinking wine and enjoying it. I'll do this, that, and the other thing. I will live for myself completely because I know I will never make it to the end if it depends on me. So there has to be something. I don't know if you're the same as me. Maybe you're not as rebellious as me. But God knows you and I both need assurance for different reasons maybe, but we need that assurance. And he's given it to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God is faithful. He is faithful. What is he faithful to? 1 Corinthians verse 1. Let's go back to verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ will confirm you. He will confirm me. That word confirm means sustain, make firm, make stable. To the end, to the day when I see Christ Jesus face to face, I will be blameless in that day because God is faithful. He is faithful. I won't be blameless and I won't be confirmed and I won't be sure and steadfast because of me. I will be sure and steadfast because of Christ, because God is faithful and he will do it. Why should God's faithfulness keep me believing? Why should his, why should his faithfulness keep me going on? Why should it do that? Well, because he loves me, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Because he's working you through the Holy Spirit. Yes, all that's true. All true. Because if God chose me before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, what does that make him look like if I don't end up holy and blameless? Where is the sovereignty of God if I don't make it through? It's gone. He chose me before the foundation of the world that I would be holy and blameless in his sight. So now, if Anne Absalom doesn't make it through, if I die tomorrow and I die having not done enough good things and done too many, whatever it is, where is the sovereign purpose of God? It disappears. God is not glorious because he hasn't brought me through. He is not sovereign because he could not control even my life, my salvation. Yeah, but it's not to do with you. It's not to do with me. That's what I'm saying. He makes promises. No. Yes, he doesn't break promises, therefore he will. But it's not the promise that I'm basing it on. That's what I'm saying, Kay. He says to us, yes, he'll see me through to the end. That's for me. That's not for him. It's for me. It's a gift to me. You know, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Yes, and that he will confirm me to the end. Yes, and that he is faithful. Yes, and they're all gifts to me. I can know that, I know that, I know that, I know. He won't break a promise, that's it. But the reason he won't break his promise is got nothing to do with me. It's all to do with him, his glory, his glory. 
That's what I'm trying to get at. See where we're going with this. You've got to get yourself out of it. Yes, God loves you. He loves you beyond your wildest dreams. Yes, he will never break his word. His word is his bond. He cannot break his word. Yes, all those things are true. But the reason he does what he does in you is for his glory. There you go. For the glory of God. It's all about his glory. And if you don't make it, he is not glorious. And that's the reason God is faithful. Even when we are not. Timothy, Paul was right to Timothy. You know, God... Um, oh, can't, I want to say it properly. Um, uh, you're probably not bothered, but I am. So where is it? It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny him, deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This, all of this, all of you, all of your life, all of your Second Timothy chapter 2, 11 to 13, um, all of everything, everything, your thinking, your purpose, your, the plan of God in your life, the way he's sanctifying you, the fact that he's called you, that he chose you to be holy and blameless, this is all about him. It's all about him. And when you're a baby believer, something in you says, well, that's not fair. Well, what does he need glorifying? Why does he have to be shown? Oh, sorry, when I was a baby believer, that's what happened to me. Well, why does he need me to glorify him? Well, why does he need this? Well, why does he need that? But it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's all about his glory. His glory, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his power, his grace, his everything. It's all about that. Why will he establish you and confirm you? Because he will be glorified. Why can Paul say in Romans chapter 8, um, Romans 8, 29, um, or verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. You are already glorified because you are already justified because you have already been called. You are already all of those things. And in your practical outworking of your life, God will bring that to conclusion. Why? Exactly. So that he is shown to be the glorious sovereign God that he is. That he is. Why does he want you to know that? Why does he want you to know that? Strengthen. He wants to give you full assurance of hope, full assurance that he will do what he's promised to do before he starts in on, and actually now we need to work on this. In 1 Corinthians, that's what he's going to do. He's done those first nine verses. He's going to go on in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions in you because of everything I've just said to you about who you are. 
can you stop talking about Apollos and Peter and Paul and start talking about the greatness of God? You know, that's, that's what he wants. So tell me, if you're a Christian today, how did you become one? There you go. He chose us freely and unconditionally in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Which means when did Christ die? Just as a little aside. Before the foundation of the world, Christ died for you. Okay. What did he do then? He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. And then what did he do? Well, at the same time. Not then. Simultaneously. He predestined you to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's what Ephesians 1 says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world and he predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. What about three? Number three. So he chose you. He predestined you. How did he lay the foundation for doing all of that? How did he manage to do that? What did he do before that? Christ was crucified. Christ must be crucified. He has to, Christ has to have all our sins laid on him before we can be uh, freely and unconditionally loved and chosen in Christ Jesus. So he has to be uh, crucified. He has to, we, he's, God chooses us. What does he show you about him, his glory in the crucifixion? Yeah. 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 In his crucifixion. What does he show you about his glory? Mm. 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 How much it's worth. How much is the glory of God worth to him? It's worth the life of his son. How much is it worth to God that he be glorified? on this planet that he is yet to create when his, Christ, his son is, is crucified, it's worth the death of his son. Yeah, Revelation 13, verse 5. Oh, so Revelation 13. Yeah, it, in our time it comes in then, but in God's timing, which is no time, it's outside of time. Uh, no, not in physical terms. Let's say the physical universe that God created began at a certain time in history and Christ was crucified physically at a certain time. But the thought of it, which is the same for God, happened before the foundation of the world. So I think it's Revelation 13, verse 5. Um, no. Uh, maybe it's Hebrews 13, verse 5. I always get those mixed up. Which talk about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Um, no, I'll have to find it. Mm. Um, and so if you are a Christian today, how did you become one? Yeah. 
you responded to God's call, but you responded to something. You became aware in conscious reality of what something that God had done before. And that is you responded to his call. You put your trust in Jesus. Um, how did that happen to you? Was it gentle and slow or was it cataclysmic? What was it? It was what? Taught. I mean, I was taught. Oh, right, you were taught. Mm. But when did you put your trust in him? Ah, okay. Mm. Right. Mm. It, yeah. Some people have a very. <laughs> there you go. Some people have a hard coming to the Lord because they're in a bad state and they they hear the gospel. They just hang on to God and it's cataclysmic. It's a big trouble. I had a gentle coming to the Lord. Um, what I'm trying to say, it doesn't make any difference which way you come. It only matters that you come. Um, uh, you one day heard the call of God and you answered. That's what happened. One day. And your answer, in your answer, you put your trust in Jesus. You put your trust in what you knew, which wasn't much then, was it? You just heard the gospel message about Jesus, that you were a sinner and he was the way out and you did it. Now, um, what Paul says here in this letter is that Jesus is what? He says Jesus is two things to us. I'll just finish that before we finish. Um, where is it? Where is it? Um, where is it? I can't find it. Um, yeah, I want to say he's the wisdom of God and the power of God, right? Where is it? Where does he say that? I think that's before. Oh, yes, 24. Thank you, Christ. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, ask yourself the question, because Paul's asking us this question. Are you in fellowship with Jesus Christ? Do you share fellowship with him and all the things we talked about before? And if you are, do you know him to be the power of God in your life? and the wisdom of God in your life. Is Christ the power of God in your life? Is he the wisdom of God to you? I.e., are you consciously receiving power to live and wisdom to live through Christ in your life? Or do you find not a lot of power in your life, not a lot of wisdom? And I was saying to Kate about this, about if we call on the Lord Jesus or is the Lord God, mm -hmm. is, is there a, a big distinction to make? Whichever uh, one we choose. Um, you come to God through Christ. So to call on the name of the Lord Jesus means to call on him to save you mm -hmm. and to bring you to God. So I think we don't pray to Jesus. That's not uh, because we're praying to God through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. But actually, you know, it's interchangeable. We do say, please, Jesus, help me with this. And yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to stop there, I think, because... Yeah, I've got a few more pages, but it'd be too much, and it's already five past. So, um, 
What do you think Paul wants these believers to know first and foremost? I mean, read, read verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think he's trying to get over to these Corinthian believers right at the beginning? Everything is there. Yeah. Yeah, everything is there. Yes. It's all about God and not them. And think about what, what does he want them to know about God to do with them? God loves them and he's enriched them with everything they need. God loves them. Uh, they're a chosen people. They've been enriched in Christ. They've been set apart for the glory of God. Wouldn't you like to hear that about yourself? Yeah. He will not allow them to take his powerful grace and use it in the wrong way. He's setting that up. He's saying, it's all about me. It's all about my glory. I am going to confirm and establish you to the end. I've enriched you with every spiritual gift. You are loved beyond your wildest dreams. You were chosen. You cost me the life of my son. Do you really think I'm going to let you take my grace and trample it underfoot? Do you think when it's all about my glory, I'm going to let you continue in a way that will defame and defile the name of Jesus? I won't. Exactly. That's exactly it. Because he's speaking from God to them. So he wants them to know that, that God really loves you. But in order for you to live a successful, wise, powerful Christian life, you have to know who you are in relation to God. That's the whole fact. You have to know who God is and you have to know who you are in relation to him. So when I say to you, why will God not allow his powerful grace to be defamed and defiled amongst you? Why will God not allow you to do that? The first answer is that his glory is paramount to him. So he will not let you defile and defame that glory. But the second answer is because then you will truly know who he is and who you are. If he stops you in your tracks from doing something that will cause his name to be defamed, that will actually cause you trouble later on, when he stops you, you will start to think, oh, right, oh, so you really are God, and I really am not. If he let you go on doing something that was ultimately bad for you and would defame him, what would that mean? In real terms, what would that mean? He didn't care about you, and he was letting you be God. 
which is exactly the reason Christ died. So, I'm not saying any questions because I'm sure you've either thought I know all this before or you've got hundreds of questions, so I'm not, not saying it. I'm just going to say thank you, Lord, that you are a great and holy God. And thank you, Father, that you will take us on in our understanding and you will bring us to the point where we all we can do is cry, Oh, Lord God, we love you and we want to serve you with everything we are and all that we have. Help us to live in the wisdom and the power that is in Christ Jesus. Help us to live in true fellowship with him, sharing with him our prayer, our obedience, our trust, and receiving from him the grace and the wisdom and the power and everything that we need to live a life that glorifies you. Yeah. Father God, that's what we want to do. So we ask you, Lord, in, in Jesus' name, to be glorified in us. And we thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.